Okay, today's daf is Mem Aleph, Gittin 41. We pick up on the bottom of Mem Amud Bet, where it starts with the Mishnah, and we're in the middle of the discussion of things that the rabbis instituted for Tikkun Olam, for the betterment of the world, and particularly with the focus on slaves. And the Mishnah reads as follows. A slave that his master made him in an apotiki, a put a lien on him for others. So um, an apotiki is a certain type of a focused lien that gives the lien holder uh, strong rights to the object that, of the apotiki, but it might also weaken his rights, his ability to collect from other things. Okay, so now there's a creditor who's a slave owner, we'll call him Reuven, and he owes money to Shimon. And what he does is he says, his, he, he says Shimon, you will have your lien, you will have an apotiki on my slave. You will have the ability to collect your debt from my slave. Okay, that's what he does. Now, v'shichero, and he freed him. Presumably, although we'll see there's a whole discussion in the Gemara because this mission is hard to read, who's doing what acts. But we'll read it that Reuve now freed the slave, so this slave is now a free man, and now... Shimon is out because Shimon doesn't have any property to collect from because you can't collect, you can only collect from him when he was treated as property, not now that he's a free man. Um, as a letter of law, the slave has no obligation. Why should he have an obligation? I mean, you know, Shimon, Ruvain managed to uh, avoid paying Shimon by freeing the slave. Um, so Ruvain maybe owes something to Shimon, but the slave doesn't owe anything. The slave is a free man. But for the sake of Tikkun Olam, you force the master to make him a free person. Now that's bizarre because it sounds like the master already made him a free person. So we'll have to figure that out in the Gemara. The Kosev star al-damav. Um, and, the, and the slave will write a, a, a document, a writ of a debt for his value. So he now has to reimburse his value to, according to the way of reading this, to Shimon. Now that makes no sense. Why it could be the slave's responsibility to reimburse his value to Shimon. So this way of reading it, we don't understand why the slave is paying Shimon, and we don't understand why Ruvain has to rewrite a, um, a, a writ of freedom for the slave. Um, the slave does not write the debt. The, free, the one who freed him, Ruvain, has to now owe Shimon the money because Reuven took away the slave, took away Shimon's ability to collect from the slave. So that at least makes sense, but it does not make sense why the slave should owe the money, and it does not make sense why Reuven would have to rewrite a writ of freedom. So now we will see two different ways of reading this Mishnah in the Gemara. Um, Gemara. Mishichra, who freed him? Okay. Amarav, Rabba Rishon. So the first master, which is obviously the simple read of the Mishnah. Reuven freed him. Now, the slave, as a matter of law, does not owe anything to the, to the second master, meaning the person who would have been his second master. He doesn't owe anything to, um, to Shimon. Okay, Shimon lost his right to collect from the slave, and the slave owes nothing to Shimon. Now, why did the free? Why did freeing the slave work? Why did the freeing the slave um, have the effect of Shimon losing his liens? Kidarava, this goes like Rava. Rava, that sanctifying something, freeing a slave, and chametz undermines, you know, or or removes, destroys any type of lien that might be on the object. What does this mean? So there are three cases. Let's take them one by one. First, you have the actish, sanctifying. I have, let's say, start with something that would not be a problem. I have a car or a house, and I, uh, you, and I give Shimon a lien on it, 
And then I go ahead and an apotiki, even a strong lean, and then I go ahead and I sanctify it to the base of Mikdash. So all I've really done is I've transferred ownership to the base of Mikdash. In that case, even though the object becomes sanctified, it really is anchored in a question of ownership. Who owns it? And the same way that if I had sold that property to a different person, Shimon could come because of his lien and take it from that other person. If I sell that property and I give that property, I gift that property to the base of Mikdash, they're just another type of an ownership. It brings Hector to the object, but they're another type of an ownership. It's a question about property ownership. And Shimon can come and take it and seize it from the base of Mikdash's ownership because of his lien. Um, maybe he, you know, and he'll, he can do some pro forma type of redeeming of it to remove the sanctity of the object. But fundamentally, he has rights because it's a question of who owns it. That's a hectate that would not remove the lien. But let's say I didn't do that. Let's say it's a different case. Let's say it's my cow. And I give Shimon liens an apotheke on my cow. And then I turn the cow and I sanctify it and I make it an ola. The idea that I've now sanctified it as a sacrifice, it has nothing to do with who owns the object. Maybe even the base of Mikdash doesn't own it. Maybe it's mine. It's my ola. It's my sacrifice. It has to do, though, with the identity of the object. This object stops being a piece of property. This object is seen of as a sacrifice, okay? And as such, a sacrifice is not something that anybody can own and claim ownership over. So the idea, the lien automatically is destroyed. There's no concept of lien by something that is actually a a sacrifice. It's Kedushat HaGuf, by its very identity, is something that is holy, not just happens to be owned by the base of Mikdash. And for the same reason, you can't redeem a sacrifice unless it has a blemish. So it's not about ownership, and therefore it's fundamentally in a different category. The sense of liens is, you know, completely falls away. So that would destroy the liens that Shimon would have on it. Shechor is our case, same idea. As long as my slave, somebody is a slave, they're considered halachically property. And therefore, you know, if I sold my slave, Shimon could come and take it from the purchaser. So Shimon can, you know, that's when it's all within the realm of property. Those liens are good. But as soon as I free my slave, he's now a free man. And the idea that you can have liens on a free man is inconceivable. It's only something that's considered in the realm of property. Sacrifice isn't property, and a free person is not property, and therefore the liens fall away. Um, that's the case of shechor. Chometz is a little different, uh, but ultimately the same idea. Um, and that's, let's say, a non-Jew has an apotheke has liens on my chometz. And I don't, and, and comes along Pesach. So Pesach makes the chometz asr behana, forbidden to derive benefit. So actually, I'd be happy if the non-Jew took his liens and went ahead and collected it. Then I'd have paid off my debt, uh, but I'm not allowed to do that because I can't derive benefit. But even besides the question of permission to derive benefit, the fact that some is Asr Behana takes it out of the realm of normal property that can be owned and transferred. The whole idea about this is something that's like banned and off limits. So therefore, these three things change the fundamental identity of the object and take it out of the realm of a property that can have liens. Okay, so that's what Rava says. So that just explains why the master freed him, was able to free him. He still had enough ownership to free him. And now Shimon is out and has nothing that has liens on it and can't collect his debt. Okay, that's the first part of the Mishnah. Great. Ella... And the slave, why should the slave own anything? The slave is free. 
But for the sake of the betterment of the world, lest the Shimon go ahead and find the slave in the marketplace and claim you're still my slave. So this is a reasonable concern. Anybody ever saw the movie 12 Years a Slave? You know, in a society, just because you're free doesn't always mean that society will recognize you as such and they'll always be able to assert or to prove your freedom. So given that Shimon had a very strong liens on this slave, um, you, you know, even though Reuven freed him and successfully freed him, uh, Shimon might go ahead and make a claim that, no, I was the owner, I had liens, I had a right, you're still my slave, and Shimon, and Ruben owes me the money, and I'm taking, and I'm taking you back, and I'm taking you, you know, I'm taking you to serve me, I'm taking you as my slave, and good luck trying to fight that in the court system, right? Who do we think really has the power, okay? So that's a not unreasonable concern that even after technically being freed, Shimon, who otherwise would be out his money, might want to still claim that he's still a slave and claim that he is his slave and seize him in payment of the debt. So what are we going to do to protect the slave? Um, so Kovinus Rabbushenev Osa Osa Ben Chorim. So now we understand who's writing the writ of freedom. You force Shimon, the person who, the, who would purport to be the second master. He's not really the second master. But the person who would purport to be the, the master, you force Shimon to write a writ of freedom, and therefore Shimon will not be able to make any claim that this person is his slave, because Shimon has already written something that he is freeing him as a slave. So that is protects this slave from staying a free person. Okay? Now, the Kosev Evej Dar al and now what, we, what we're going to have to do maybe, right, to get Shimon to go along with this is that in exchange, the slave now writes an IOU to Shimon that he owes Shimon his value. Now, that's not fair because, you know, it's not the slave who did anything wrong. It's Ruvain who did something wrong to Shimon. Why should the slave have to pay Shimon? But nevertheless, the rabbis understood that this was a fair trade-off for the sake of the slave. Better to be protected against being claimed to be a slave by somebody who has more power than you, okay, and exposing yourself to that real risk. Better that that person should clearly, you know, disavow any claim, and in exchange, you're a free person, you'll have to pay off the debt. Over time, you'll have to pay off the debt. So it's not fair, but ultimately, it's for the betterment of the slave. That's what the rabbis say. Um, no, at the end of the day, yes, you know, Shimon, if we want to get Shimon to write that writ of, of, of manumission, he might have to get somebody to promise to pay him. But that person is not going to be the slave. It's going to be, it's going to be Reuven, which makes sense. Reuven ultimately was the one who owed him money. Reuven's actions prevented Shimon from collecting his debt. Reuven has to be the one that now writes him that IOU. Okay, but my kamiflagi. What is their debate of Rapsimuliel and the Chachamim about? But Mazik Shibura Shachavero kamiflagi. When you damage your friend's not property, but your friend's lien, you do something to destroy either the property that your friend that somebody has a lien on, or to destroy the lien itself. Okay, Demar Sever Chayvamas Sever Potter. One says your Chayv, one says your Potter. So if you know, Shimon had a lien on this house, and I went ahead and I destroyed this house. So, okay, maybe there's a question, you know, I, I, I was Ruvain's house. So, A, maybe there's a question, do I owe Ruvain any money? But there's also the question, if I owe Shimon money, because I've now prevented Shimon from paying up his debt, and his lien might give him certain property rights. So maybe it's also like I destroyed Shimon's property. So in this case, Ruvain, by freeing the slave, he destroyed Shimon's lien. 
Okay, and therefore the question is, he didn't destroy the property, but he destroyed Shimon's lien. So Shimon had a type of ownership over the slave. Reuven acted in a way that essentially it's like he damaged the property or he damaged the lien itself. And is that considered a tort? And does Reuven have to pay? So the Savar Chayev, Mar Savar Pater. That Reb Shimon says Reuven has to compensate Shimon for destroying the lien on the slave, and the Chachamim say he doesn't have to compensate, and that's their debate. So Reb Shimon says Reuven pays because Reuven destroyed the lien, and that's a tort, and he has to pay him for it. Um, and so even though Reuven, Shimon can't collect the first debt, he can now collect the second debt, and the Chachamim say no, Reuven is exempt; it'll be the slave who pays it. Now. You know, that's at least explaining why Rabbi Gamaliel says as a matter of law, Reuven is actually obligated because he damaged the tort. He damaged, you know, Shimon's property, um, Shimon's uh, lien. Um, it, even once you say, though, it's a matter of law, of tort, Reuven isn't obligated, it doesn't exactly tell you that the slave should be the one to pay. Maybe we should still make Reuven pay because Reuven was to blame, at least blame, you know, in terms of the, the hurt of Shimon. He did something good vis-a-vis the slave. But apparently what the Gemara is saying is once there's not an actual tort, if we want the, the Shimon to write this star in order to protect the slave, it makes sense that it will be the slave that will be the one that will have to owe the money, and it's ultimately in his benefit. Okay, that's that debate. Itmar um, Nami, we also taught in Breita, Hamazi Kibura Shel Chavero, if somebody damages somebody's lien, that would be the debate of Rabbi Gamliel and the rabbis. That's at the core of their debate. That's one way of reading the Mishnah. That's Rav's way of reading the Mishnah, that it is the first master who freed him, and the second master who writes the writ of manumission in order so he does not make any false claims against the slave. Ula Amar, Mi Shichra now, Ulus flips it. Who freed him? The second master. When it says the master freed him, it meant the person who would purport to be the master, the person who would want to take possession of the slave to pay the debt. So the creditor, Shimon, is the one who, quote-unquote, freed him, or looked like he freed him. He really didn't have the power to freed him, but he wrote this writ of freedom. So, Rabu Shani Shechero. So, Shur Sadin, Eina Evid Chayev Klum. The slave, as a matter of law, is not obligated. So according to this, it doesn't mean he's not obligated in money. Of course, he's not obligated in money. Um, you know, he hasn't even really been freed. So we're gonna, this is really the weakest part of this reading of the Mishnah. It means he's not obligated in mitzvos. He hasn't yet been freed. Okay, that's a very weak read of the Mishnah. He's not, the Mishnah seems to be talking about who do you have to pay, but the Gemara is reading it as the second master or the creditor, quote-unquote, freed him, and the slave is not yet free. Okay, Ella, so now what do you do? For the sake of the betterment of the world, meaning nothing really happened, but now we've got a problem. There is now a perception, you know, a report that this person is a free man. Free man. So the second person was the creditor. He has somebody presumably with wealth and with power. And, you know, he's going around, he's saying, I'm going to collect that slave. And then he frees him. People are under the perception that this slave has been freed. Now, that's not good for society because then the slave will, you know, marry a Jewish woman. Then the marriage won't be binding. And we'll think he's obligated in mitzvahs and he's not obli- fully obligated in mitzvahs. So we've got a problem. The perception doesn't link match reality. And the thing with perception and reality is that it's, it's, that it's a lot easier to change reality than to change perception. So what the Chachamim are going to do now to fix this, that we've got this problem that of the perception reality, is they're going to not work to fix the perception, they're going to work to fix the reality, the facts. So what do we do? 
You force the first master, Ruvain, the guy who really owns him, you force him to free him, to turn the perception, to turn, you know, what the, the, the facts to, to be the same as the perception. Okay. Now, the slave just got freed. He wasn't deserving to get freed. I mean, whatever deserving means, but it wasn't sort of going to be a reality. Just, you know, this Yahoo Shimon tried to free him, but that didn't mean anything. Now we're going to make the master, Ruvain, free him. So the slave got freed. The slave now has to pay back the, the has to pay back for Uve. And presumably this is a very good deal for a slave. If you were to tell any slave, you'll be free as of today, and, and but eventually, over time, you'll have to pay back the debt. I'm sure they would have taken up that offer. Okay, so that's what we do. We make Uve and free him to, match, to make the reality match the perception, and the slave then will now pay back um, no, the slave doesn't pay, Shimon pays. It's all Shimon's fault, so Shimon is going to be the one that is going to pay back Reuven. Now, you might be saying, why does Shimon have to pay Reuven? Reuven was the one who owed Shimon money. But the, the, as Rashi explains, in case the slave is worth more, let's say the debt was 800 and the slave was worth 1,000. So had Shimon seized the slave, he would have had to pay Reuven back 200. Now, what Shimon did is Shimon freed the slave, quote-unquote freed the slave. Reuven actually freed him. So Reuven was forced to free him. Reuven is now out 1,000 for a debt of 800. Shimon now has to give him back the difference of the 200. The debt is paid, and Shimon gives him back the 200. Okay, so that's the question. Does the slave pay Reuven? Maybe also the slave would only pay 200 since Shimon, quote-unquote, freed him. The debt is over, okay? But does the slave pay Reuven or does Shimon pay Reuven for those, that 200? Okay, so now what is this debate about? What is the debate? With a damage that is not, you know, obvious, that is not visible. Uh, one says it's considered damage, it's not considered damage. What's the non-visible damage? Well, Shimon made the slave into a free person. So he basically removed Reuven's ownership, he damaged Reuven's property, he took this property and made it no longer his property, okay? But it's not exactly, the damage is not exactly visible. Now, it's a little bit of a question. I mean, Tosa says, really? It's not visible? I mean, somebody's walking around as a free person as opposed to walking around as a slave? You know, there's a degree of visibility there, um, you know, at number one. Number two is, is the problem really the question of visibility or the problem is that Shimon really didn't even do anything? He didn't actually do the damage. He said some words or he gave a, a star that didn't have any effect that then led the rabbis to force Reuven to go out and free him. Okay, so... Maybe it's not so much that it's not visible as that it's indirect, but anyway, that's the question. Through Shimon's action, Reuven now no longer owns the slave. Is Shimon liable or not for that damage that he did to Reuven's property? Okay, so, so if you say, like, it is damage, so Shimon caused Reuven's property to be lost, uh, to be damaged, quote-unquote, and therefore Shimon pays the difference, the extra $200. If you say Shimon did not damage, it's not a tort that can be collected, the damage he did to the slave, then we are going to have, although again, it was all because of Shimon, we're going to have the slave bear the burden of it. This is like the previous one. If you don't have a tort on Reuven and Shimon, then because the slave is getting freed and because we're protecting the interests of the slave, the slave is now going to be the one to owe the money. Okay, so that is the two ways of reading it between Rav and Ula. According to Rav, it is the first master that freed the slave. The second master goes ahead and writes a writ 
in order to um, so to not falsely claim that the slave is his, and then it's the question of you know of who pays back Shimon. According to the second read, it's Shimon freed the slave, the quote unquote freed the slave. Uve now has to make the facts match the perception, and the question is now going to be who pays back Uve. All right, um, now. Gemara says like this, Ula, my time Rav. Why did Ula not say like Rav that it was the first master who genuinely freed the slave? Because the mission, when it continues, it says the master, um, you know, um, is right, uh, writ of freedom. And how can you call Shimon the master? He's not the master. He's the guy who's purporting to be the master, you know, but uh, who would falsely claim to be the master. But the mission wouldn't call him the master. So that's, that, therefore, I don't like your read because you're having the Mishnah call Shimon, the guy who's writing the, 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 the writ, who's the master, you know, you're having that be, that be Shimon. Um, okay. Rabba Karisle? Virav my Tamalamakula. Why did Rav not say Lakula? Melcha, Shani Meshachra Karisle? It's the other part of the Mishnah is the problem. Because then the Mishnah says that Rabbi Simon says the freer, the one who freed him, has to pay. And, the, you know, you say that that means that. Shimon has to pay, but Shimon didn't really free him. Really freed him. Shimon just pretended to free him. Bottom line is, both Rav and Ula have to read in. The Mishnah here speaks about the master and the one who frees him. And the only person who's both really the master and really the one who freed him is Reuven. But the Mishnah doesn't make sense unless you read Shimon into one of those roles. So that makes it hard to read the Mishnah either way, because either you're going to have to read Shimon into the master or into the freer, and he is not genuinely either. Okay. So that so the Mishnah is a hard read. It's a harder read, I should say, according to Ula, that has to say that a slave isn't liable means a slave isn't isn't a, isn't obligated in its vote. That's a very difficult read. Okay, but anyway, two different reads of the Mishnah. Now that we're talking about apotiki, we're going to continue to discuss the power and the nature of this lien called an apotiki. So, itma, it was taught. Um, Somebody goes ahead and makes his field, he, puts a, he makes an apotiki on his field for a creditor. He gives this creditor this strong lean, this apotiki. Um, the Shatvanar, and then it gets swamped by a river, and it's underwater, and it's completely valueless. This person, rabbi by the name of Imi Shafirnaya, which means of, 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 of pleasant, uh, you know, uh, uh, visage, of like, uh, like good looking. said in the name of So the question here is like this. The apotiki gives you a focused and strong lean on the property that the apotiki is for. Does it, um, you know, it like limit your rights to the other pro- to other property as well. Does it does it mean you have no liens on anything else? So in the, here, this Imi Shafir Noah says in the name of Yochanan, it limits you. It's exclusive. You only you have an intense uh, right to this property and no rights to anything else. So if you can't collect from this property, you're out. That's sort of what the Mishnah sounded like in terms of the slave. No, no, no. You, if you can't, maybe you have to collect from this first. Okay, maybe that's what it does. It prioritizes that and gives you more rights to that, but it doesn't prevent you from collecting from other property. So he make a little, seeming a little sarcastic. says because Imi is of so, so good looking, he says uh, ideas, halachas that are not so attractive. Like he didn't like this idea. Why should because you strengthen somebody's lean? Why should that prevent the person from collecting from other things? So that. He didn't like. 
So Elam, so the Gemara says, um, so the Gemara said, you know what, you're right. The way to understand what Imi was saying in the name of Yochanan, and maybe they weren't even debating, was that, that if you make it a super strong, you're explicit, you make it exclusive, explicitly exclusive, and you say, you can only collect from this, so in that case, you are explicitly cutting off, you know, uh, eliminating, um, excluding any liens on any of the rest of the property. So you have a normal set of liens, which are, you know, not an apotheke, which means that there's a whole question about which one do you choose, and like, you don't have any particular right to any one of them, okay? So it's more sort of diffuse, but that would be normal liens. Then you have an apotheke, what's called stam, which is, you just say this is an apotheke, which means that you have stronger rights to this, maybe you, t- you have rights to it before anybody else, you know, maybe if the, the only tries to sell it, you can immediately annul the sale. We'll sort of see things like that. Okay. Um, but it also means that if you can't collect from this, you can go to other things. And then you have an apotheke miforage, an explicit apotheke, which means this is the only thing you can collect from. Okay. Um, okay. Tanya Idak. Now, uh, I'm sorry. Tanya Namihachi, we taught similarly in a Braisa. How is this a day apotheke? La'acher, if you made your sudden apotheke to somebody else. Vishat Fanarn, it was swamped by a river. Go with Mishar Nechassim. You can go ahead and collect it. So if you can't collect from this, you can collect from others. But if you said explicitly, you can, oh, you can have no, you will be nowhere else to collect from except this. This is the only thing you have a lien on. Then in that case, ain't a go with Mishar Nechassim. You cannot collect from, from others. Tanya Idach, now we taught in a, in five. That, so there you go. Exactly that distinction. Tanya Ida, we've done another Brysa. Hoses a day apotically Bachov Luxuvis Isha Govi, Govi Mishar Nechasim. If you make your field an apotheke for a creditor or for your wife's Ksuva, then and they can collect from other property. Uh, presumably, if they're not able to collect from this, or they, you know, presumably, let's say they have to go to this first, but if that's not sufficient, they can go to other property. So that's what we've already taught. But now we're going to have a distinction about the Ksuva according to Rabshon Gamaliel. Rabshon Gamaliel Omer, Bachov Govi Mishar Nechasim. I agree with you with the Bachov. But the wife cannot collect from other property. Why not? Because it is not the way of a woman to go having to, you know, uh, go sue the person in court and have to, uh, you know, find court records and discover where all your property is and all the possible people you sold it to. Now, that's all very nice, but that sounds like, it sounds like you're trying to take to be considerate of her and saying that since, you know, women are not usually in the whole court system and they can't be expected expected to you know, trace the paper trail of all of your thing, we're going to make it easier for her and say that she only collects from this one thing. But like, is that really easier? I mean, you're excluding her ability to get from other things. So, you know, Tosus discusses this, and Tosus also speaks about, well, it does strengthen her ability because it means that any attempt to sell this thing, she can immediately void. So, therefore, it allows her to focus on this one thing and to make sure that this one thing is not sold, and that actually will be is seen to be in her, ultimately in her benefit. Okay, that at least is what human Leo's position. Okay, so that's in terms of the idea of apotiki and the um, and the tikkun olam about somebody who was freed but might not be perceived of as being freed or might be claimed to have not been freed. Now we move to another mishnah about a slave, and this is an, a very very famous mishnah. Okay, somebody is half slave, half free. How is this possible? We'll discuss in the Gemara, but the simplest way is that he was owned by two partners, and one partner freed him. So therefore, this person now is considered to be a half-slave, half-free man. The interesting thing is, as we were discussing before, you know, that this question is not just a question of ownership. Do, does somebody else own me or do I own myself? 
the part of me that has been freed is a fundamentally different identity and a different legal status. It's the legal status of a free man and not of a slave, which has a different level of obligation in mitzvot. I'm able to marry a Jewish woman as a free man. I'm not able to do so as a slave. I'm permitted to marry a Jewish woman and not permitted as a slave. So you might have, you know, it's, 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 it's funny that we can allow for this dual status. You might feel like, you know, status has to be, has to be one. You're either a slave or a free man. You can't be half and half. Those are contradictory statuses, but that actually halacha allows for. And that's going to lead to the interesting question in this Mishnah. So you have this slave of half free, half slave. Half free, half, half slave. So Beitel just focuses on the monetary aspects, right? I'm entitled to my own earnings, um, half of my own earnings, um, because of the half of me that's freed. And you, my master's entitled to half my own earnings. Half the time I can tell myself where, you know, what, where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do. And half of the time, I, you know, my master gets to tell me. So we'll alternate days. It works that Shabbos I'm off. So therefore, you know, you have an even number of days. And one day I'll work for my master and I'll be under his control and he gets to keep my earnings. And one day I'll be under my control and I'll keep my earnings. That's what Beitel says. You, and here's the word of tikkun olam, you have fixed his master, meaning you've taken care of his master. His master has rights to half his earnings, and you've ensured that his master gets half his earnings. But you haven't taken care of the slave, because there's more to the slave than just half of his earnings. Okay? Lisa shifcha iav, He might be able to keep his earnings, but what about getting married? He can't marry a slave, because half of him is a free man. And a free, you know, a normal, you know, Jewish man is not allowed to marry a, a non-Jewish slave. It's learned from the Pasuk of Lo Yekidesha. But now he can't marry a free woman, um, because the half of him that is a slave, lo kadesh, is the basis that we say that a, a free that a that a Jewish woman cannot marry a male slave. Okay, so therefore he is prohibited to getting married. So you are not giving him his full life, even though you are giving him his parnasa. Okay, now. Um, you bought out, so maybe say, okay, don't have, you know, don't have kids. But you, that's not a solution because the world was created for the sake of procreation. God did not create the world to, lay, to be, to be uh, void and empty. It was fashioned in order to be settled. For the sake of tikkun olam, and here it's very nice. You know, you have the word. This might have been the original form of the word tikkun olam. It says takantem es rabo atzmo lo takantem lo nivra haolam. So, due to the tikkun, not just for the slave, the master, but the tikkun of the olam, kofin es rabo also so ben chorin. You force the master to free him, and um, now he can go ahead and get married. He's a total free person. And the slave has to owe the master half of his value. He has to pay back the master for the cost of the other half of him. Beitil was persuaded, and then they went back to rule like Beit Shammai. Now, first of all, that's fascinating because we always assume like, yo, you know, Beit Hillel are the sympathetic, they're the, they're, they're the, you know, the nice guys, the responsive to the human condition. So it's quite fascinating and I don't have an explanation, but here it seems to reverse itself and then eventually Beit Hillel came along to Beit Shammai. The other interesting thing is why the Mishnah quoted the reason of Lotoibra'ah and not the, per, the idea of the mitzvah of pru or vu. So this is, an, right, the slave has a, as a man has an obligation of pru or vu. So this is an important discussion that Tosus has. And 
Tosfos says, look, if it was just for Pruervu, um, you could say, that's not enough. I mean, somebody is an anus, somebody is not able to fulfill a mitzvah. Okay, you know, so let's say, I mean, let's say you would say the slave, I don't know, can't sit in a sukkah. That would be a reason to, to fulfill, to free the slave. Sometimes there are mitzvahs we can't do and it's not our fault and God isn't going to hold us responsible. So that's why Beit Shammai had to say, it's not just the mitzvah of Pruervu. It's that the, this is such a huge mitzvah. Forget even the technical question. Am I obligated, not obligated? Did I fulfill it? Am I potter or not? The, you know, it's fundamental to the human condition and to the reason the world was created. And that is something, such a big mitzvah, such a big, you know, human fulfillment that you're withholding from him, that is not acceptable. If he was fully a slave, he could be married and have kids, and now he can't do either. That is something that we have to fix, okay? And therefore, that, so, that, so that's what they say. And from that perspective, you know, it's sort of telling you the weight of the mitzvah purvu, but it's also telling you that there's this fundamental concept that goes beyond the question of is it a mitzvah or not a mitzvah. And uh, that does lead to a whole interesting discussion in Tosos that maybe the side of him that's a slave isn't obligated in Peru. The side that's a slave has the same level of obligations as a woman, but maybe that side is, obli- maybe there's this obligation called lotohu bira'a or lasheves. So Tosos develops this idea that gets you know, develop more in later halacha, that there's this mitzvah called lasheves that applies to women and to slaves um, and turns this sense of this profound importance, you know, the purpose of creation, etc., and somewhat halachasizes it and makes it into a mitzvah that now applies, you know, to women and slaves. But you don't have to say any of that. You just have to say that this is such a powerful value that we have to, and it underlies the mitzvah guru, that we have to do something for the sake of the slave. Okay, let's take a look at the Gemara. Tana Rabbanan, our rabbis taught. Now, I gave the example, you know, Rashi said already, that it was half owned by, owned by partners and one partner freed and the other did not. The, mission, the Gemara is now going to discuss how can you create a half-slave, half-free person? Can you do it with a single owner to get to that reality? A single owner owes a whole slave. Can he free half of him? Somebody tries to free half his slave. Rebbe Yomar Kana, it acquires, meaning the slave acquires half of himself. He's half free now. It does not take effect. Amar Rabba, says Rabba, the debate is when you try to free a slave with a document, a writ. It says by case of a man who sleeps with a shifcha, with a female slave, who is has not been fully redeemed. So that already speaks to this uh, phenomenon of being half redeemed and half unredeemed. And we're going to try to dis- decide, like, how do you get to that state? Okay? She has not been redeemed, and pidyon means with money, not been fully redeemed. Or her freedom has not been given to her, meaning something that's given as opposed to the slave paying money to redeem him or herself, something is that her freedom has not been given, meaning she has not been freed with a star. So the first part talks about half freed through money, and the second part, and she has not been fully freed, and the second part says, and she has not been freed with a star. So, maki star lekesef, so links the star to the money. The same way we see by the money, it says freed but not fully freed. So the same way we see that the money can, you can achieve half freedom by paying for half of your value. By the document as well, you can even give a document and say, by this document, I hereby freeing half of you. That's what Rabbi says. The Rabbi say, no, no, no. 
How do we know that a star works at all by a slave? Because based on this pasuk la, her freedom not given to her, given to her, and by a woman it says, you know, because of la safer kritut, he writes for her a, a writ of divorce. So we learn out from that link to a get that that's, that you can free the same way a man frees his wife by a get, a man frees his slave by a star. And the same way a man cannot half divorce his wife, it's an all or nothing, right? It's a personal status issue. So, so, even a slave cannot be half. So, what is he saying? So, put the Pesach aside for a minute. What Rebbe, the way, um, um, the way uh, Rabbah is reading this debate is like, look, he says Rabbah, when it comes to money, you know, money, you can pay off half of your value. And therefore, everybody agrees that that is a way that somebody could become a half slave, half free person. They could pay off half of their value. But conceptually, a star is different because a star, like we talked about before about, you know, the whole idea of identity, a star starts by focusing not on the question of who owns this person. A star is about your identity. I am here by making you a free man. And therefore, when you start with ownership and money, I can pay for half of my value and now I half own myself and now maybe I'm a half free man. But when you start with a star, there there's a debate. Because a star, you could say, only works on the whole person. The same way a get only defines, a, it's either the woman is divorced or not divorced. It's the whole person. A star either makes the slave a free person or not a free person. It's about their identity, not about their ownership. So that would be why, that would be the rabbis that said that it's linked to the get. And Rebbe says, no, because it's connected also to the money, even a star can work halfway. Okay, so they all agree money works halfway, and they debate if a star can work halfway. That's how Rabba reads the debate. Um, when it comes to money, um, everybody would agree that does work. Okay, because that would be the the woman would be freed, but not fully freed. And that's in the Pasuk. Okay, so the Gemara says, now, okay, so that's the debate. Now, let's, what's at the core of the debate? So the Gemara thinks maybe it's just a technical issue. Maybe this is where Rebbe and the Chachamim are debating. The Gemara's Adif, that the Chachamim say the Hekesh, the link of la la to the get of a woman, is stronger than, excuse me, the Hekesh, excuse me, the, the la la is a Gzei Shava. The Hekesh, the juxtaposition of the money to the star is stronger than the than the gzera shava of the to the get of the woman. You know, it's pulling in two directions. The chufshalonitan law is has a hekesh to the money. It's juxtaposed to the money, which is halfway. But it's a gzera shava to the get, which is all or nothing. So one says the hekesh is more powerful, and therefore it connects to the money, and it can be halfway. If the gzera shava is more powerful, and therefore it's all or nothing. So maybe that's their debate. So the says, "Well, no, the chuleyama gzera shava difa." I could tell you that everybody would say we would go by the Gzeira Shava and we would link it to the get of an Isha and it would be all or nothing. That would be all other things being equal. But the comparison to, get, to, 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 to the get is not complete. Why not? Because money doesn't work by a woman. So you're not fully linking the, the, the freedom of a slave to a woman because then you would say oh, a slave couldn't be freed by money. So so by a slave who is freed by money, therefore halfway should work, okay? So everybody might say normally we would follow Gzei Shava, But here, Rebbe is going to say, at the end of the day, though, 
slave is not totally like a woman because money works by a slave and it doesn't work by a woman and money works halfway. So once money works by a slave and that's halfway, even the get, even the star can work halfway and the chamin still say, no, sorry, two different paths. The star works all or nothing. Okay, that's Rebbe's explanation. Everybody agrees about money halfway and the question is the star that makes a lot of sense. Okay, um, Rav Yosef, I mean, now Rav Yosef has a different interpretation of the debate. Machlok is Pekesef. No. Actually, he's going to say like this. Star, everybody agrees it's all or nothing. The question is, can money, can that eat, be halfway? So they, you know, so, so that's the issue. The, Rebbe, the debate is by money. The Rebbe suffered after lo niftasa. Rebbe reads the Pasuk, redeemed, not redeemed, meaning peduya ve'ena peduya, half redeemed. So the Pasuk's explicit half redeemed. So Rebbe says, at least by money it can be halfway. Star, I agree, is all or nothing. At least by money it can be halfway. For Abundant Savi and the Rabbis hold, No, 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 no. It does mean she hasn't been redeemed. Like the Pasuk, Does it mean, you know, you'll be cleansed but not fully cleansed? Or does it mean like the, you know, the normal translations have it, you won't be cleansed at all? Okay, so Rebbe says, so, um, so the Chachamim say, so just means hasn't been redeemed at all. And the Pasuk is talking about a woman that hasn't at all been redeemed, not half redeemed. Okay, so according to Rav Yosef, a star is all or nothing. And Rebbe, though, says money is different. Money can be halfway, and the Chachamim disagree even with that. Okay, so their debates are mirror images of, of, of one another. Um, okay. So, by star, everybody would agree it would not work. Okay, so that's the issue where, again, that, um, uh, that Rabba, would, Rabba says that they all agree money is halfway. The question is star. And Rav Yosef says they all agree star is all or nothing. The question is, can money be halfway? Now, may say, I'll ask you, we have a brighter. The brighter says if somebody frees half of his slave with a star, Rebbe says that it works, and the Chachamim say it doesn't work. So here explicitly, they are debating about whether a star works halfway. That is an absolute contradiction of Rav Yosef. Rav Yosef said everybody agreed the star was all or nothing. Here you see it's not true. Here you see Rebbe and the Chachamim debate whether a star works halfway. So the Gemara says, Nema lema b'shtar hu depligi avo b'kesef lo pligi. So now, no, b'shtar hu depligi avo b'kesef lo pligi. Now, we, we, let's, what also sounds like is they're only debating a star. Rabbi and, 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 and the Chachamim are debating whether a star works halfway. The fact that they're not mentioning money makes it sound like they all agree that money works halfway. So the simple read of this Breitah is exactly like Rabbah. They debate a star all or, all or nothing or halfway, but implicitly, money, everybody agrees halfway. So the Gemara says, So, should I say that this Breitah not only proves against Rav Yosef's claim that a star was all or, that they all agreed a star was all or nothing, because here it's explicit they debate whether a star is halfway. Maybe the Brysa also contradicts Rav Yosef's claim that, um, that they debate about money, because this Brysa makes it sound, by only talking about a star, it makes it sound that they all agree by money. So does that all contradict the second part of, of, of Rav Yosef's claim? So the Gemara says, Amal Rav Yosef, Kesef. No, no, no. I, I, you've proven to me that they debate whether a star is halfway or all or nothing, that it is a debate by a star. But I will still claim that they're also debating money. They don't agree by the money part, okay? They debate both. That Rebbe says everything works halfway and the Chachamim say nothing works halfway, okay? So that's what at least I'm going to try to salvage that part of my position. 
if that's true, um, so then why are they only discussing the star? If they debate whether both of them work, either of them work halfway, why don't they also talk about the money? Why are they only talking about the star? To show you the power of Rebbe, that Rebbe who says halfway, not only halfway by money, which makes sense, but even halfway by a star, which would seem to talk about the whole identity of the person, Rebbe is going to go so far to say even a star works halfway. But just because they're discussing by a star does not mean that they agree by money. The Chachamim don't like money halfway either. So the Gemara says, So why not discuss the money issue and show you that the rabbis who say it doesn't work, say not only does it not work halfway by star, it doesn't even work halfway by money. So the Gemara says the answer that we could have expected, the power of being, uh, of being permitting is more powerful, meaning it's always easier to say it doesn't work. Oh, this isn't a perfect freedom, you know, so it's not going to work. Everything's got to be perfect. It's got to be uh, 100%, 50% doesn't work. So okay, the Chachamim don't want it to work halfway even by money, that's fine. But it's much bigger Chiddush by Rebbe to say, I'm ready to say it works halfway, not only by, it doesn't have to be perfect, it doesn't have to be all, and not only does it work halfway by money, it even works halfway by star. So we'd rather tell you the power of Rebbe's position over the fact that the Rabbis don't like it even by Kesef. Okay, we will stop here.